so let's uh, just do a recap real quick. Um, last week we started by actually looking at uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, talking about King Solomon. And Ecclesiastes, King Solomon makes a pretty strong statement. He comes out and he says, human life, human achievement, human effort in total is completely futile. It's completely vain. Right? Um, and he, he just holds that whole argument throughout the whole book. Um, he, he tells us things like, you know, we might as well just enjoy our life right now. Um, he complains about the fact that God has put an eternity into our hearts, his desire for eternal meaning and relevance, and yet we don't enjoy um, that desire of being satisfied. Um, uh, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, we went over to 1 Corinthians 15, and we looked at what the Apostle Paul had to say about it. And there, the Apostle Paul we find is actually, in a, an interesting way, in hearty agreement with Solomon. He says, life is futile. Life is empty. empty. Your faith, your hope, your labor, everything you're trying to achieve is worthless. And uh, he says, um, he quotes Isaiah, but it sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes. He says, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Except for one, you know, this is all apart from one all-important exception. And, and Paul says that all-important exception is the hope of the resurrection. Really, when you boil it down and you think about it, um, I think if, if even secular philosophers were to be honest and think about it, they, this is true. Human existence is futile and meaningless apart from a, a resurrection. A hope in the future, immortality. And that's what Paul gives us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He tells us we have this hope refuting and rebuking this false doctrine that came about in the Corinthian church um, that says there's no resurrection. And he's saying, no, there is a resurrection. We have no hope. We have no point uh, apart from that resurrection. And um, that's actually what gives us our meaning, the hope of the resurrection. He tells us that, on the other hand, because of the resurrection, we actually can live in hope. Uh, one day our dead bodies will be raised. We'll be, uh, we will enjoy immortality with uh, God and His Son Jesus, and uh, because of that, at the end of that, if you want to look through, you're welcome to turn there. First Corinthians 15. At the end, he says, "Because of this, your labor and work." He's talking to the church. Your labor and work as believers is not in vain. Solomon said, "Everything's in vain," but Paul said, "Because of the resurrection, your labor and work is not." So, um, reason that we, it's that that's the main thought that I want to keep in mind and kind of have as a guiding principle or guiding thought as we study church history uh, because that is what church history is about. The reason that church history is so important to us and should be so fascinating for us as believers is because it's it's the, the fact that the church is the one and only uh, human institution. It's human, but it's, it's uh, set up by God and the church has been entrusted with this message of the resurrection, the message of the gospel. It's the um, only group of people who carry with them, have carried with them, and have passed down throughout history uh, this hope of lasting eternal relevance. Uh, we also talked about last week this idea that the whole world all around us, at least in, in America, there's this word relevance that gets tossed all over the place. The world is interested in relevance. They're talking about relevance. But the interesting thing is they're preoccupied with now. Um, Solomon wasn't preoccupied with now. Solomon looked at the past in his present, and he looked into the future and said, you're right. Um, 
Paul, of course, wasn't just preoccupied with the now. He looked at past, present, and future, and he said, you're relevant except for the resurrection. And the church is this one organization that's lasted for 2,000 years um, and has carried that message and that hope. And so what we're reading is the story of that group of people that we belong to that has that hope and, and has had that hope now for 2,000 years. So uh, uh, naturally, this story really was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Uh, when the Old Testament law and the prophets foretold the gospel, uh, it begins actually, of course, in, in the gospels uh, and then continues on in Acts. That's all church history. And so we actually hear church history every single week when we come to church on Sundays, uh, whether we're studying Old Testament or studying New or in church history. Um, but we usually do stop there, at least in Bible-believing churches. That tends to be where we often stop. And, and it makes sense. Um, the, the four Gospels, Acts, um, that's where they stop, and that is the Holy Word of God, that's inspired scripture, so inspired scripture kind of closes with um, the end, the, basically the apostles, uh, and so, and that's what we want to emphasize in church, since that's the, the foundation for faith and doctrine, we don't want to suggest that there is something else that is foundational, um, or something else that would, you know, be on that same level, we're not saying that, but regardless, Church history, what comes after the Apostles, um, is also, and perhaps even in the time of the Apostles, but wasn't recorded in Scripture, all of that's still helpful for us. Uh, we believe that it can be instructive, and it can also be a really big encouragement for us if we get into it and we study it. And that's the thought that we're carrying with us as we go forward in this in the study of church history. Okay? Um, we, uh, uh, last year... I believe it was, was it December when we wrapped up our, our Acts study? Uh, Pastor George took us through the a book of Acts, and um, Acts closes out with Paul going to Rome. Uh, he had just gone back to Jerusalem, and he um, got arrested. Then he went to Caesarea. He was in prison. He had to defend himself a couple times before a couple different governors. Finally, he appealed to Caesar, uh, and then he gets sent to Rome. And, of course, we followed him across the sea. And the last thing that we hear about the Apostle Paul is he's in, under house arrest in Rome, waiting to stand before the appellate court of Caesar at the time, and uh, it just stops there. So what I want to do today, this will be where we actually start talking more about history, is I want to pick up kind of where Acts left off, and I want to try, try to find what we can find and, and from other records and see what happened after that. Uh, and for that, we're actually going to back up a little bit instead of continuing to follow Paul uh, through with his adventures. We're going to go back to Jerusalem. And what we're going to do today is we're going to pick up with the story of the Apostle James. Alrighty. Now, um, Paul and James were two very, very different apostles in, in many respects. Um, they looked different. Their lifestyles and their ministries were different. Um, James, for example, was thoroughly Jewish in the way that he lived. He, uh, it makes sense, actually, if you think about it, too, because all the records that we have on James, both in the Bible and then outside the Bible, it seems like he's always in Jerusalem. All the accounts are talking about James being in Jerusalem. And that's significant if you think about the... Um, if you think about the fact that there were all these persecutions that occurred in Jerusalem, and those per persecutions resulted in people getting killed, 
um, and it results in people having to run away. Uh, but James seemed to stay there. Uh, and now, again, just for clarification, when we're talking about James, we are talking about, right now, we're talking about James, the brother of Jesus. Not to be confused with James, the member of 12. So in the Gospels, you often read about Peter, James, and John. That was James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And that's not the same James here. So James, the son, son of Zebedee, was martyred in Jerusalem by King Herod. So you remember when Paul was arrested, that was right after James was beheaded by King Herod. So that James has already lost his life for his faith. The James that we're following today is the brother of Christ um, from the Gospels. We don't hear a lot about him in the Gospels. Uh, most of what we hear about him in the Bible actually comes to us in Acts. Um, but we do know from the Gospels that he didn't believe in his brother, at least at the beginning of his ministry. Somewhere either later in Christ's ministry, or possibly, I think many people think he... He believed after he saw his resurrected brother. That's when James became a Christian, and uh, it became one of the chief apostles in, in, the, in the New Testament, in the early church. So um, uh, this is that James that we're talking about. Now, he actually stays in Jerusalem for a long time. Uh, and what we know from both the Scripture and from other sources outside the Bible is that James was thoroughly Jewish in the way that he lived. He, um, uh, he kept, it appears that he, he kept most of the Jewish cultural traditions, those are traditions he was born into, um, and he won a significant amount of respect uh, from both Christians and non-Christian Jews in Jerusalem. He was incredibly devout. Um, uh, he was very devoted in his, in his uh, prayers. Uh, he prayed a lot in the temple. Um, there's a very early Christian named Hegesippus gets quoted by some of the early guys. That's, uh, if, you want, if you're taking notes, his name is spelled H-E-G-E-S-I-P-P-U-S, Hegesippus. Hegesippus was probably um, uh, born maybe at the end of the, I don't know, maybe the first century. We're told that he came after the, right after the generation of the apostles, so he would have been writing maybe early second century. Uh, and Hegesippus tells us some things about James, I'm just going to read it. This is a, an excerpt that I have uh, that were given from Hegesippus. Um, Hegesippus tells us the church passed of James, the brother of the Lord, along with the apostles. He was called the just uh, by everyone from the Lord's time to ours, since there were many J Jameses, uh, but one who was consecrated. Uh, he tells us this about James. He said, no razor came near his head. He did not anoint himself with oil. He took no baths. Uh, he alone was permitted to enter the sanctum. Uh, he wore, he didn't wear wool, but linen. He used to enter the temple alone and was often found kneeling and imploring forgiveness for the people so that his knees became like camel's knees um, in continual kneeling and worship before God. So, so James, according to this account, was, sounds like he might have been a Nazarene, not or a Nazarite, I believe. Um, but basically someone who took Jewish vows, practiced a lot of the Jewish traditions. And for that reason, James was highly respected. Um, not just by Christians. Uh, it appears he was respected by the non-Christians as well. That could explain how he survived so long. If you if you want to get rid of somebody, if you hate what he stands for, you kind of have to, you know, rally a bunch of people behind you. And if there's just a few people in power, maybe a lot of people in power who are like, who, who when you say, hey, let's get together, let's get rid of this guy, you got a few people in power saying, oh, I don't know about that. He's a pretty good guy. It's going to be pretty hard to get rid. And that's what we find about James. Uh, highly respected, thoroughly Jewish, um, 
very devout, and um, it seems like both Christians and non-Christians alike in Jerusalem respected him. It was also, I think, probably easier for James to be thoroughly Jewish like this. As the leader of the, of the Jerusalem church, we're told by um, early Christians that James was uh, the bishop of the early church, or at the very least, he was one of the most influential elders there. Um, as the leader of that church, the Christians in Jerusalem would have been predominantly, if not entirely, Jewish or Jewish proselytes. That would be Gentile believers who had probably first converted to Judaism, and then when the apostles started preaching the gospel, they also believed in Jesus. So in that kind of church culture, it would be very, very easy for James and the whole church uh, fellowship there to just continue keeping their Jewish traditions without a lot of you know, backlash, so to speak. So, John, did you uh, need to see it at all? Did you need to find place? Or did so that was James. Um, the Apostle Paul, of course, we know a lot more about him from the Bible. Was that what Paul, Paul was like? Not really. Um, Paul was very, very different. Look real quick at uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 20 and 21. One of many, many things, I think, many, many passages in the Bible that gives us clues about uh, the lifestyle and ministry of Paul. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 and 21, Paul is explaining to the Corinthians one of his guidelines for how he lives, and he says, and to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without law toward God, means he's not lawless, he's not, you know, embracing all of the uh, pagan practices of the Greeks. But he's doing, he's living, he's embracing the culture of the Greeks, uh, Gentiles, so he says, that I might win those who are without law. He came to the weak, I became the weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I might by all means win some. So what Paul is saying here is that in his ministry, God specifically called Paul to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And so in his ministry, he has to kind of find a rhythm. Or when he's with Jews, he needs to be sensitive to Jewish ways of living. Um, and then when he's with Gentiles, he needs to be sensitive to Gentile ways of living. When he's with Gentiles, he eats like a Gentile. Um, in fact, for the Jews, you weren't even supposed to eat with Gentiles, let alone like Gentiles, right? Um, but then again, when he's with Jews, he's probably respectful of the Jewish, you know, traditions, washing and eating a certain diet and so forth. Um, that's things like this make Paul very, very controversial. And that's part of the reason, I think, why we see Paul in his entire ministry is just getting persecuted from one town to the next. Um, he uh, adds to this the fact that as he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles, the Gentiles believe, and he says, no, they don't have to become Jews now. No, they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to start keeping the Sabbaths and, and all the festivals and everything else that, that we do as Jews. So, when Paul comes to Jerusalem, Paul is kind of a maverick, maybe even a bit of a pariah. A lot of people are saying, this guy's trouble. And we really see that start 
you know, sort of difference, at least external difference, between Paul and James. Let's look real quick at Acts uh, chapter 21. This is uh, where Paul is returning to Jerusalem. He's A lot of rumors are swirling about him. Um, and uh, there's some concerns. And if you look here in, in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 18, there's this group of leaders in the Jerusalem church who come and talk to Paul. And they're led by James. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. So lots of Jews have believed, lots of Gentiles have believed, and the Jews who have believed are continuing to keep the law of Moses. And then 20, verse 21 says, But they have been informed about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. This is slander. Paul was not teaching Jews not to circumcise their children or to just abandon all the Jewish traditions. Um, but he was telling non-Jews, non Gentiles, that they didn't have to. And so this, you can kind of understand how this rumor came about. Right? Um, verse 22, he says, What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses. And so on. This is all part of a, a Jewish custom where they took a vow. And um, uh, basically what the Jewish elders, led by James, are asking Paul to do is let's allay some of these rumors about you. Show people that you do support the Jewish you know, traditions, um, and let's have you follow some of these Jewish traditions here. And, and when you do that, then that will avoid any division in our church uh, here, here in Jerusalem. And I think what's really underlined, underlined in this is some of this, the real external differences between Paul and James and the way that they lived and ministered to the church. Now, of course, this whole attempt by Paul ends up backfiring on him. He does this, they go to the go to the temple and um, the, the, the riot starts, he gets arrested. And you know the rest of the story right there. Um, something about these two pictures that we see. We, we have on one hand an apostle of, uh, of Christ named James who is lives his life a certain way. Uh, performs his ministry in a certain way. On the other hand, we have the Apostle Paul, also Apostle Christ, who does things very, very differently. If you think about it, the way that these guys uh, you know, go about doing things, although very different, if you, if you really think about it, most of these differences are very external. They're really about things that don't matter a whole lot in the end. The way that these two guys are the same is... Uh, what's really counts. It's what's truly relevant, and that is that they both profess faith in the name of Christ. They both profess faith in the resurrection and in uh, the person of the resurrection, Jesus Christ. In the end, both of them do pay the ultimate price, but the way they get to that point is a little bit different. So, again, Paul, uh, if you follow the story of Paul, he goes to Caesarea, he stands before uh, Felix first, and then Festus, King Agrippa. 
in Acts chapter 26, verses 22 and 23. This is kind of his last testimony before the governor in Caesarea. He says to him, Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witness both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul gives that testimony. He goes to Rome. It's worth mentioning, I think, here that... Um, the belief in the resurrection wasn't really what got Paul in trouble. Not, not just the resurrection for its own sake. Uh, there was a, hand, a handful of different Jewish sects in Jerusalem. The most powerful one was the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, but the Pharisees were also very powerful, and they did believe in the resurrection. And for a brief moment, it seems like Paul actually got their sympathy, but it didn't last. What really was the problem was the person of the resurrection. That was Christ. Paul believed in Christ. James believed in Christ. Uh, and that was the difference which those other Jewish sects, uh, it was the non-negotiable that eventually let them to get rid of them. Um, so Paul, because of this testimony, this hope in, in the Savior, uh, the firm belief that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the one that we're looking for, that will bring that resurrection that we hope for, because of this he goes to Rome. Now back in Jerusalem, after Paul leaves, now we're stepping out of the Bible, just be aware, kind of looking at some other sources here. But it, it, it appears that after Paul left, uh, things actually continued to heat up a bit. And there may be a number of reasons for that. There's, uh, I mentioned this fellow last week. Uh, there's an early church father uh, from the 4th century named Eusebius. He's considered the uh, father of church history. He, he kind of was the first guy who sat down to kind of compile a complete history of the church up to his own time. Um, he believes that what happened is with Paul gone, the and the Jewish leadership, the Sadducees in particular, who had like the high priest, they were the high priest was a Sadducee, they were um, really disappointed at not getting Paul. So because of that disappointment, they decided to kind of take it out on James. I don't know if that's true. I don't know how much other evidence suggests that. Um, there was a lot of things actually going on in history at that time. The, uh, there was a, a, a sort of an increasing sense of Jewish nationalism. Uh, it, wouldn't, it would be a very short time before, in fact, the Jews actually uh, committed another serious, severe revolt against Rome. But with this Jewish nationalism kind of heating up, um, it seems like it may have also been a little bit of Jews wanted to find this sense of unity, and they felt that this, this sect of Jews who believed in Jesus being the Messiah, that they were a threat to that unity. That may have also been part of it. We don't really know, uh, but there was a combination of things that were going on. Um, there is... Uh, let me check my notes here real quick. Uh, some other information that we have is that Festus, who was the governor that Paul was tried under, um, the, the second one, uh, he died sometime after Paul uh, left for Rome. Now, when he died, of course, the Roman governor, the Roman emperor, had to appoint a new governor for Judea. Uh, problem was, uh, 
Roman emperor's got to appoint the governor, and if that governor's not already there in the province, it's going to take some time for that governor to get to the province. Uh, there's a couple people. One is Eusebius, and the other one is um, Josephus, who tell us that uh, during that interim time, like the time where Festus died and they're waiting for this next governor to come, the high priest in Jerusalem thought it'd be a really good time to attack James. Uh, he was going to be the most powerful guy in Jerusalem, and so he seems to be the author of what happened to James after Paul left. Um, for those of you who are interested in like dates and things, Paul probably went to Rome in about 62 AD, somewhere around there. Um, what happens to James that we're going to learn today would have occurred sometime between 62 AD and um, 69 AD. We know it had to happen before 69 AD. Uh, some people, I think the earliest, some historians are going to put this as the earliest being right about 62 AD. So uh, I'm going to read an excerpt. I'm going to keep reading some excerpts from, uh, from Eusebius. Eusebius is quoting Pegasus. All right, so this is what Hecasippus tells us. He says, representatives of the seven sects among the Jewish people, which I had previously described, asked him what the door of Jesus meant. And he replied that he was the Savior. Because of this, some believed that Jesus was the Christ. So clearly, this he's talking about James here, and clearly James is preaching Jesus all uh, there in Jerusalem, and he's having an effect. A lot of Jews are actually beginning to uh, turn to Christ here. Um, they're not offended by James as they would be offended by Paul because James actually is uh, pretty stalwart in his um, Jewish practices. The sects mentioned above, however, according to uh, Hegesippus, said they did not believe in a resurrection. He's probably talking about the Sadducees there. Or in one who is coming to reward each according to his deeds. So they didn't believe in Jesus. They really had a problem with James preaching Jesus here. But those who did believe did so because of James. Now, since many, even of the rulers, believed there was an uproar among the Jews, scribes, and Pharisees, saying that the whole populace was in danger of expecting Jesus as the Christ. So they said, so they assembled and said to James, We call on you to restrain the people, since they have gone astray after Jesus, believing him to be the Christ. We call on you to persuade all who come for the Passover concerning Jesus, since all of us trust you. We and the entire populace can vouch for the fact that you are righteous and take no one at face value. Here you can see from this account that, again, clearly James is really respected by everybody. He's respected by believers and non-believers alike. In fact, the church, and it seems that people outside of the church had kind of developed a title for James. Uh, lots of Jameses, of course, lived um, at that time. And so James's specific title... Uh, James, the brother of Christ, his specific title was James the Just, or in other translations, James the Righteous. Um, it's just a testimony to what kind of reputation he had. People really thought, hey, this is a really upstanding, really good guy. Now, he's a little weird. The non-believers would think, oh, he's a little weird in the fact that he believes in Jesus, but you know, clearly he's a pretty good guy. So he has this uh, pretty strong reputation. But in the end, it really wasn't enough for James to be Jewish. It wasn't really enough for him to keep the Jewish traditions. It wasn't enough that he was devoted to Moses, um, his strict observance of the law, his 
his uh, reputation for a very disciplined lifestyle. All of this got him a lot of points. But the one non-negotiable in the end was his faith. His faith in Christ, the, the, the first fruits from the land, the Lord of the resurrection. This is what got him in trouble. And finally, the, clearly the elders, the, the, those who were the religious leaders at this time, were going to bring this to a climax. They arrested James. They, they brought him. Um, we don't know if this was where exactly this was, whether this was before the Sanhedrin or some other place, but basically they, 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 they confronted him and said, we need you to tell the people, don't believe in Jesus. So they were going to make this, they were going to make this the hill to die. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was also, well, fortunately for James, unfortunately for them, it was also James's hill to die on. We go ahead and uh, read a little bit more from Megasippus here. They said, uh, we and the entire population can vouch for the fact that you are righteous and take no one at face, face value. So do persuade the crowd not to err regarding Jesus, since we and all the people respect you. So stand on the parapet of the temple, where you can clearly be seen from that height and your words be heard by all the people, with all the tribes and Gentiles to gather for the Passover. So you have the Passover um, when the temple still existed, of course, the Passover kind of almost looks like the, the Hajj looks today, I think, in some respects. Thousands and thousands of people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this religious festival. Um, there are Jews. They say Gentiles, too. That would certainly be Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. And the chief priests um, in Jerusalem are trying to get James to betray Christ, to tell all the Jews from all over the world, Hey guys, don't follow after Jesus. So the scribes and Pharisees, this is Hegesippus again. The scribes and Pharisees made James stand on the temple parapet and they shouted to him, O righteous one, whom we all ought to believe, since the people are going astray after Jesus, who was crucified, tell us, what does the door of Jesus mean? He replied with a loud voice, Why do you ask me about the Son of Man? He is sitting in heaven at the right hand of the great power, and he will come on the clouds of heaven. So, despite the respect that they had for, for James, they uh, kind of make him run the gauntlet, and sure enough, as we would expect, he doesn't betray Christ, and instead he uses the opportunity to, to proclaim Christ to thousands of people. This is what happens to him after he does that. Then the scribes, and fair, oh, I missed the part, let me back up a little bit. He will come on the clouds of heaven. Many were convinced, and this is Hegesippus telling us, that many were convinced and rejoiced at James' testimony, crying, Hosanna to the son of David. Then the scribes and Pharisees said to each other, We made a bad mistake in providing such testimony to Jesus. Let us go up now and throw him down, so that they will be afraid and not believe him. And they cried out, Oh, even the just one has gone astray. So they went up. And threw down the righteous one. Then they said to each other, Let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him since the fall had not killed him. But he turned and knelt down, saying, I implore you, O Lord God and Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Well, while they were pelting him with stones, one of the priests um, said, This is a, a reference to the Rechabites. He's, uh, Hegesippus tells one of the priests of the Rechabites, um, said, Stop, what are you doing? The righteous one is praying for you. But then one of them, a laundryman, took the club that he used to beat out clothes and hit the just on the head. Such was his martyrdom, and they buried him on the spot by the temple. That's how James came to his end. Um, 
a man who was highly respected and highly revered, even so in the end, because of his faith in, in Christ, had to give up his life as an apostle. So, any questions here before we go on? It was uh, Agasiphus again. Agasiphus? Yeah. Who was he? Yeah. Agasiphus is, uh, I guess you could say, a second generation believer. He, um, we don't have a lot from him, but he's quoted by Eusebius, who's a church historian from the fourth century, quoted by a handful of other church fathers. Um, seems like they relied on some of his writings a lot. Uh, he would have been, I think, he would have lived probably early, early second century, so early 100s AD. Uh, so he's valuable as a source because he would have lived uh, in the church when a lot of the people in the church would have known, would have remembered, maybe even personally known some of the apostles, would have remembered the apostolic, the apostolic church. And the stories of what happened, you know, very recently would be very fresh and he could write those down. So uh, he's referred to uh, by a number of the, of the church fathers. We don't know a whole lot about it, though. Let's turn to the book of John, um, just for some consideration. The end of the Gospel of John, chapter 22. as we look at different apostles and how they lived and how they ministered. One of the biggest lessons we can see between in these contrasts between guys like, maybe a guy like Paul and a guy like James is while externally they were very, very different uh, in the, what was truly meaningful and essential, they were exactly the same. And uh, that can be something, I think, as we look across church history and, and also in our own time, that's going to be something we run into a lot. At the certain... If, if the apostles could be this way, then how much more the rest of us, you know, servants of God who are very different in, in ministry, in calling, in um, what specific ways that that they that God has required them or called them to serve them, including the ways that they suffer. People are going to suffer in different ways as well. Um, but none of that should be allowed. We shouldn't allow any of that to overshadow the fact that we all do hold the same faith in the at the end of the day, we, we, both, we all believe in Christ, and uh, we all hold 
faith in that one thing that is truly relevant, which is Christ, uh, by his blood, giving us the resurrection. So that's um, most of it for today. Just give you guys a little bit of a preview for next week. Um, after James died, Eusebius actually believes that, well, not long after James died, there's a uh, Roman general, the Jews revolt, and there's a Roman general named Vespasian who lays siege to Jerusalem in 69. Eusebius actually believes that this was a direct punishment on Jerusalem for killing James. And I don't know if you agree with that or not, but um, again, the point that we might boil it down to is that with uh, what was going on at that time is you had a increasingly hostile, uh, I guess we could say polarized environment where people are getting very angry. We have a, a Jewish nation that's getting ready to rebel against the Romans. And um, in that time, as, uh, as things continue to escalate, we finally see a revolt. Uh, there's a siege laid to Jerusalem. At the same time, over in the city of Rome itself, things are going into chaos. The Emperor Nero, his reign is disastrous, and a lot of things are going bad over there as well. So next week, we're going to kind of pick up again with the story of Paul and maybe the story of Peter as well, and uh, kind of pick up. But I want to give, I think what we'll do next week, we'll give you a little bit more of a uh, sort of broad historical context background of what's going on in the world of that time. So we will uh, be looking forward to that next week.